This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Friday, October the 6th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show, it's the weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Three topics on deck today. The Vatican is considering same-sex marriage in the Catholic Church. Prime Minister is considering an anti-smoking policy. Basically, it's going to raise the legal smoking age by one year, every year. How effective do you think this policy will be? And France is deploying efforts to pinpoint the Paris bedbug infestation. I'm curious, who's accountable for an infestation in a big city? What does that accountability even look like? Questions headed your way over the course of the next hour two hours on this Friday edition of the show. But the show begins with the top story of the day, and it's all about the economy. Stats Canada just released its September job numbers a few minutes ago. The Canadian economy added 64,000 jobs last month. The unemployment rate held steady at 5.5% for the third month in a row. The job gains were concentrated in part-time work, educational services, transportation, and warehousing were the sectors that saw the biggest increases. Average hourly wages went up 5% from a year ago. So year-over-year average hourly wages up 5%. Speaking of jobs and labor, Unifor and General Motors are still deep in negotiations ahead of a Monday strike deadline. Lori Paris has the latest. National President Lana Payne says some progress has been made, but there's nothing automatic about having the company agree to the terms it reached in September with Ford Motor Company. The union will also have to work to convince its own members. Union members at Ford only voted 54% in favor of their deal, and it was voted down by skilled trade members in Windsor and Oakville. Larry Savage, chair of the Labor Studies Department at Brock University, says members at GM will likely vote in favor because there's much to gain for the many new hires there. Stellantis members, however, will be much tougher, as local 444 President Dave Cassidy reportedly says he plans to push for better terms and break the pattern set by Unifor's deal with Ford. Lori Paris, the Canadian Press. Staying in the economy, the federal government has reached an agreement with big grocery chains to try and stabilize food prices. Innovation Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne lays out some of the policies. Starting soon, Canadians will be able to see rollout of actions such as discount across a basket of food products, uh, price freezes and price matching campaigns to name a few. Champagne explains why the policy is important. Canadians are, are frustrated uh, and they expect bold and decisive actions from each and every one of us. Uh, this is not just us as a government, but I would say it's us as Canadians where we need to tackle these things. And I think that we need to take, uh, like I say, bold and decisive action. That's certainly what we intend to do. Switching over to business and technology, British regulators are investigating Amazon and Microsoft's positions in the cloud computing market. Karen Chamis explains. Together, both companies make up between 70 to 80% of the market share in an industry worth over $9 billion. 
after a year-long study, UK communications regulator Ofcom claims that British businesses face barriers when they try to switch or use multiple cloud suppliers. As a result, Ofcom have passed on their findings to the UK antitrust watchdog, the Competition and Markets Authority. The CMA are opening an in-depth investigation that is expected to wrap up by April 2025. Karen Shamas, London. So that's the theme you've noticed here around technology in the last six weeks or so. Antitrust cases brought in the U.S. against Google and Amazon, and now an antitrust investigation going on with Amazon and Microsoft in the U.K. Interesting to note that shift. It really feels in the last eight weeks or so, there's been a little bit of a sea change in regards to the government and technology relationship. Okay, one more story for you. This one is from the intersection of sports, technology, and accessibility. There's a new football helmet for players who are deaf or hard of hearing. Gethin Kulba tells you more. AT&T and Gallaudet University have developed a football helmet for quarterbacks who are deaf or hard of hearing. The company and Washington-based school for students who are deaf or hard of hearing unveiled the new technology Thursday. The innovation allows a coach to call a play on a tablet from the sideline that then shows up visually on a small display screen inside the quarterback's helmet. Gallaudet coach Chuck Goldstein said he thinks the helmet, quote, will change football. The NCAA cleared the Division Three school to start using the helmets in its game on Saturday against Hilbert. I'm Gethin Coolbaugh. Very, very cool football season underway and now a little bit of accessibility to talk about in the football world. That makes me a very, very happy boy. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find the show on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find the show on Facebook. Yesterday, Marco Flalo stopped by to talk about a couple of the uh, new products and accessories that Google put out. So I asked you this question. Do you try and buy devices and accessories from the same brand? How would you describe your brand loyalty? 43% of you said very brand loyal, 38% of you said somewhat brand loyal, 5% of you said a little bit, and 14% of you are with me saying not at all. Facebook responses, Tony writes in, very, however, depends on the product. Phone, yes, love Samsung, computers or TVs, no. Also have tried a different brand of hearing aid and I realized I'm very brand loyal to Phonak. Brett comments in, very, will always be an Apple guy. Tammy writes in, very, Android only, because I know how to use a lot of it. And Anna votes, very, at least for major appliances and tools. Occasionally I try different things, for example, headphones or speakers. Yeah, definitely on the page with Anna there. Sometimes it's nice to have uniformity across the big, 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 big stuff. Like to have a washer and a dryer of the same appliance brand or a fridge, a stove and a dishwasher. A little bit of uniformity because then maybe they can talk to each other. Or you know where the buttons are. But yeah, headphones, speakers, get wild. Be weird like Dave Brown. Spend less money uh, and enjoy experimentation in the uh, wild places that is the large river retailer known as Amazon. Today's Daily Poll, all about reading books. There's going to be a lot of conversations about books and literature in the second hour of the show. Red Zale, the host of 
My Life in Books is going to stop by to talk about his most recent episode of the podcast and talk about narration. Then Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access is going to be talking about uh, some featured books ahead of Thanksgiving. So lots of literature and, and, uh, and book conversations in the second hour of the show. So I'm curious, what is your preferred format to read a book? Audiobook, e-reader, hardcover, slash paperback, or other at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Amanda Shikarchi, you've admitted to being an avid reader on the show. What is your preferred method to read a book? I usually go for an audiobook. I really enjoyed the experience of having the characters' voices come to life through the narration, especially when you have full cast narrations and it's very engaging and you feel super immersed in the story world but sometimes i'll challenge myself and decide to order a book on brit with braille shout out to see the library for that um because it's always good to improve the braille skills and there's a satisfaction of turning each page and knowing that you made it to the end mm, yeah i was wondering if people were going to be chiming in a little bit about braille books or maybe even like a large font like if i had my absolute druthers my total preferences Alex Smythe, I would just love a physical copy with a giant print, like a 20-point font or something, so it would be so easy and comfortable to read. However, the downside of that is that book would be gargantuan if I was trying to bring it on a train or try to uh, try to get it anywhere uh, in any kind of uh, reasonable way. So, Alex, that's where I've really landed on the e-reader. I know e-reader can sort of mean a lot of different things to different people, but when I say e-reader, I mean using my cell phone. Download the book on my cell phone, blow up the font nice and big, super easy just to turn the pages, and I find that to be a very comfortable experience for reading. So, Alex, my vote is e-reader. Yeah, Dave, I think I'm kind of along the same lines with you. I, I've never used an e-reader before, but I always loved the hardcover and the, the physical copies oh, of books. Yeah. The, the challenges I'm, I'm finding, it, it's harder and harder for me to be able to read those uh, standard fonts and and, uh, stand, and like the physical books. So I, I've heard some great things about e-readers, so it may finally be time for me to kind of make make that shift, make that jump into the e-book the e world. Uh, the one thing I'm, I'm kind of hesitant about, I'm, I'm trying to get less screen time in my yes, life. I already yes. spend a lot of my time in front of a screen, but you know, if I really want to read a book, I, I, I don't have the patience to sit there and listen to an audiobook. I don't focus yeah. the same way. So I, I, I need to be able to read those words. And if I have to read them over again or, or really ponder and pause, audiobooks don't necessarily allow that. So I think, yeah, my vote's going to have to go with e-reader, even though I've never done it before. You know, Alex, if you uh, want to at least give an experiment for yourself, you can download the Kindle app for your phone for free mm. and then just give and give that a shot, right? See how that feels. Or I don't know if you have a tablet, but you can also try it with a tablet as well. Yeah, so I have an iPad, so that may be something I will have to investigate. Dave, thanks for the tip oh, on that, and, and see how it goes. What can I say? Proactive Dave Brown over here, always full of good ideas. It's a Friday, so you know that means the doors of Dave Brown Consulting are blown wide open. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you can answer the daily poll. What is your preferred format to read a book, audiobook, e-reader, hardcover, paperback, or other at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the news panel gets together. Welcoming back to the show, Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, everybody. And hello, Joita. Hi, everyone. Three topics on deck here. Lots to get to. Let's jump right in. The Vatican is holding a three-week meeting I thought AMI was bad with meetings. The Vatican is holding a three-week meeting about the future of the Catholic Church. The issue of same-sex marriage will be on the agenda. James Longman explains. Five of the most conservative cardinals have written to Francis saying they feel that the synod was sowing confusion and they've asked for clarity on same-sex unions. But the Pope is clearly keen to tackle these criticisms head-on. He published his response, making it clear he wouldn't stand in the way of blessings of same-sex unions in church. That is not marriage. It's important to make that distinction, but it is still a major reversal. I do agree with James Longman. There is a distinction there, but fundamentally mm -hmm. the conversation here is about same-sex marriage in the church. Joita, why'd the topic jump out to you? Well, actually it jumped out at my husband, but we both thought it was a fascinating topic because it gets at a number of issues that have been uh, tumultuous or unsettled within the church, especially the rights of LGBTQS2 uh, uh, people and their sense of belonging in the church. And beyond the, the the implications for the church itself, whether or not there might be a split down the line, how is the Pope going to navigate trying to make everybody happy in this situation? There are also, I suspect, um, implications that go beyond the church. And I would be very interested to tackle some of mm -hmm. those. Suffice it to say, the issue of LGBTQS2 communities uh, and their rights and privileges within the Catholic Church and indeed other churches has been a long-standing and dare I say controversial point. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. There's a lot of meat on the bone and you set up the angles really nicely there, Joita. But Michelle, let's start with just the baseline because this is an institution mm -hmm. that's almost 2,000 years old. It does not move quickly. To me, the story represents a little bit of progress, but I want to say, like with the caveat, just a little bit of progress that's still way behind the broader conversation on some of these issues. But th that's what this represents to me. What does it represent to you? Yeah, very similar in that I, I have to say in researching this topic, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole looking at the, the various takes people have on Pope Francis. And it's it's very clear once you really dive in how divisive he has been with the Catholic Church. Um, people who are more conservatively inclined seem to think he's here to bring about the end of the institution as we know it. They fight every bit of liberalization of which this is a pretty significant one. This is, uh, and he's been trying, he's tried to strike a friendlier tone to LGBTQ parishioners and, and worshipers for a long time now, but this is the boldest stroke on that front. Um, going back to how divisive he is, his, his conservative critics will hate this move, undoubtedly, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of people who have been pushing for him to do a whole lot more. Uh, there's been absolutely no language welcoming trans people, for instance. So as you say, Dave, this is a small amount of progress for sure, uh, a huge amount of progress perhaps within the context of the church and more than a lot of people within that institution are comfortable with. Mm. But uh, it, it's an, it, to me, we ask about what it stands for. It's, it's sort of another effort for me, for Pope Francis to cement his legacy as a reformer, which he's been trying to do since his papacy began. Yeah, Juita, so I think there's a little bit of consensus here with me and Michelle in regards to uh, inc like incremental progress that's probably yes. still a little bit out of touch, but progress is progress, and it's important to acknowledge progress when it happens. Fundamentally, organized religion is about outreach and bringing more people into the tent, so that's probably part of this as well. But what does the story broadly represent to you? 
Yeah, I think incremental progress is the the theme for the day, for sure. And I think that while it's a long way removed from the sanctification of same-sex marriage, uh, it's still a, a step in the a direction away from saying that same-sex unions are a sin. So progress is is still progress, however incremental it might be. What took me what what was surprising for me and maybe this is just an indication of my own limited worldview is that often when we live in north america especially living in canada and we see pride month and lgbtqs2 parades we are might think that the question of lgbtqs rights are more or less settled and nothing could be further from the truth especially when you consider Uh the reach of the catholic church and the fact that there that there are many countries in which the question of the rights of LGBTQS2 people remain deeply unsettled. And I think this issue really brought that distinction. That, as I said earlier, earlier in the conversation, it really does speak to the push and pull between the edicts of, and teachings of the church and societal expectations. So there's a lot of things that you can unpack there for sure. Uh, but I think the key takeaway for me in terms of what the story represents is the fact that the question of LGBTQS2 rights is not as settled as we might otherwise we'd like to believe mm, yeah i think i think that's a that's a really strong observation as well let's uh, engage in some reckless speculation that uh, dabbles in a bit of history the catholic church has gone through some separations and schisms before probably the two most notable would be the separation of the roman catholic church and the eastern orthodox church in sort of the 1500 years ago <laughs> uh, category of time and then again about uh, 600 years ago the protestant reformation kicking in as well so there have been official divides and splits in the church before based around ideology and theology. Michelle, how could this issue, you mentioned that it's Pope Francis has been somewhat divisive. How could this potentially lead to an official schism or split within the church? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the schisms you talked about have happened over uh, over less, one could argue, than the issue at hand here. But that said, when I was doing my sort of research uh, dive yesterday, there have been people hollering schism since Pope Francis took office. Mm. Um, so, so that that threat has existed for some time. Uh, there are apparently a hardcore within the Catholic Church who who are really intent on bringing back, say, things like the Latin Mass, and and they, that hardcore represents a whole lot other uh, of other views that the, the Pope has been at odds with over time. So that faction has existed, has gotten emboldened. Apparently, there have been some active efforts by American bishops to push back on him at times over the course of his papacy. Um, so is schism impossible? Absolutely not. But I will say that that, that threat has seems to have been in the background from the start, and this is not his first controversial move. So I think it seems a bit unlikely. Also, I'm a bit struck by the fact that he's been trying to diversify the base of cardinals with people from other countries to try and broaden the tent and make things a little bit less Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. So it will remain to be seen, too, if any of the new additions he's been making to the, the Catholic administration, so to speak, in recent years will help maybe uh, limit that possibility. Joita, what's your speculation on the possibility of an official schism? Well, if there's an official schism, it's not going to happen tomorrow. These things take a long time to develop. But if you look at what happened in the 1960s with the Second Vatican Council, at that point, you had some people in reaction to some of the reforms brought into the Catholic Church say that they're going to split off and form their own, quote unquote, so-called traditional churches, but they're pretty small in scale. Um, 
you did also see something very similar happen in the Anglican community, where again, with reforms like the like the willingness to ordain women, uh, led to people uh, in more conservative parts of the world turning around and saying, uh, "We're not going to follow the authority of the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury." I think mm. what you're going to see the probability of a schism or some kind of a splinter away from the Catholic Church and the papacy goes up a lot more in countries where there is a more conservative hierarchy of the church built in, and they're more likely to support a move away from the church or even there I would caution because uh, those who are conservative or traditionalists uh, do value uh, the papacy and they do value the historicity, mm -hmm. the, the historic yeah. sort of oh, relevance of the Catholic church yeah. before they say you know what we're gonna going to go our own way they're going to likely uh, think long and hard about that decision one of the things that's interesting though is that for all that uh Pope Francis has tried to reform the church and, diversif and diversify it and push back with some liberal ideas. He is 86 years old and not in the best of health. And so there might be some people who are willing to just, uh, I know this is a nasty thing to say, <laughs> but they're willing out. to wait it out wait a little out, bit yeah. and, see, and if, see if somebody more conservative comes along and rolls back some of those provisions. We did see that happen in the past where uh, you have uh, people who've been more uh, conservative follow along behind someone who was more liberal and roll back some mm -hmm. of those provisions. Like John 23 was a quite, a, quite liberal. Um, and then of course, John Paul II were, and the Benedict. John yeah. Paul II came along and he was less conservative. So yeah, you've got those people just sitting it out and saying, he's 86, you know what, do what you want, but yeah. probably somebody more conservative will come along. Uh, the implications outside the church are interesting because, Joita, you mentioned that when we're talking a lot of 2SLGBTQ plus rights, in a lot of cases, this has become quite political. It's been quite polarizing. There have been a lot of, uh, even not far from Canada and even within Canada, people really staking their claims around some issues here. So it does at least strike me as a little bit of a guiding light when a major institution at least signals something that's closer to inclusion. But again, I don't I don't quite see the parallel. I don't quite see the exact parallel here because I think the conversation going on in the political sphere and the conversation happening here are sort of on a 15-year delay. I think a lot of the issue around marriage and union, that was sort of settled, at least to a degree in the Canadian and American perspective in the last 10, 15 years. So the church is a little behind on that now. Now I'd say we're talking more, a little bit more about gender identity in these yeah. conversations and more like issues of access to healthcare or equity in healthcare. So I think the conversation is a little bit further, but Michelle, I do see it as at least a smidgen of a guiding light when a major religious institution does at least put up the flag for inclusion <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you in that to me, this is part of the, the, a very interesting and, and rich and varied backdrop of efforts to grapple with LGBTQ rights. Uh, we've seen those rights under fierce attack and actively rolled back in some places. Uh, we've seen the fears that the uh, Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision in the States overturning that, that the fear that that ushered in that more of, those, of their rights would be under attack now that abortion protections were gone. Um, we've seen massive attacks against, against trans people. And again, they haven't been part of the Catholic conversation here. Um, you're right, Dave. I think we're, we've been talking about unions with the church, and now we're into sort of the next generation issue. We're talking about parental rights, quote unquote, here and gender expression, all these kinds of issues, access to public spaces, not just access to health, all kinds of questions around those sorts of things. So 
it's the, the fact that this issue has come up again in the Catholic Church almost sort of bucks the broader trend of, of having sort of more regressive measures taking place elsewhere while this old institution starts down a, a potential path of progress. Uh, but it all kind of feels a bit uh, like we're stuck in the past yeah, around yeah. all these things. Uh, Joita, yeah. implications outside the church? Well, I think the implications are likely to be more broadly felt in places like Latin America or Africa or even parts of Asia where the society is a little more conservative in its views and there are relatively few uh, rights for LGBT people compared to, say, here in North America, uh, but where the church continues to be very dominant in the lives of people. So I think any sort of uh, statement by uh, by the Pope will have greater ripple effects in places like that. I suspect the conversation is a little bit behind the times in places like North America and Europe, but it is still significant, especially for Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was interesting to see, as with a lot of negotiations, how uh, it almost feels like Pope Francis was trying to keep everybody happy, therefore making everybody unhappy in the process. Um, I know that's a gross oversimplification, but uh, you know, just if you go back and look at some of the nitty gritties of this, uh, it's a real endeavor to try and strike a middle ground on, I think, an issue that has long been very divisive. Uh, against the backdrop of all of this, though, or, or or forming a context to all of this, though, is the fact that church membership in North America and participation in religious institutions has been declining over the decades. There's a lot of research to back this up. And yeah, I would be very can, curious. The, 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 latest, the latest census definitely showed that. That was actually a topic on the panel. I think it was uh, Michelle, was it you, me, and Megan Gilmore who covered that one when the census came out, or was it the three of us? Uh, doesn't matter. It was, a, it was a while yeah. ago. It was a while ago. But yeah, Juita, the census data backs that up completely. The, uh, the yeah, religious suspect, affiliation is I way sus- down. Yeah, yeah. And I suspect that's really the, at least in North America, that's a way to try and attract younger or uh, younger people back to the church and get them to attend again. Whether or not they'll be successful is a whole other conversation. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for bringing that topic to the table, Joita. Coming up after the break, the conversation stays in Europe. England's Prime Minister is considering an anti-smoking policy. It involves raising the smoking age by one year every year. How effective do you think this policy will be? The panel will weigh in with its thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown and the Now News panel on AMI-tv. the Now News panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. We'll fire it up, so to speak. England's Prime Minister is considering a new anti-smoking policy. Rishi Sunak thinks that raising the legal age to buy cigarettes by one year every year will eliminate smoking in the country. The legal smoking age in England is 18. Michelle, what filter do you want to apply to this conversation? All of them, because I have to confess that this one, I, I, I read the policy and I am almost coming to you all begging to be persuaded about its efficacy because <laughs> I, I am not sure how I feel about this one. I, I'm, I have to admit, I'm struggling a little bit to envision how this would be an effective measure, how this would work exactly. Um, 
so many questions, so many doubts, and I just don't know quite how to go about this. I recognize that there's all kinds of questions around smoking as a public health concern. And for that reason, the government wants to try to take measures to curb it. Almost every government does so to some degree. Uh, but this is also something that lines government coffers to a pretty uh, significant degree. Yeah, even yeah. In, So I, I, they're, they're just quite apart from an, an unusual sounding policy that I can't quite square with, with the realities of things. Uh, I find this to be an interesting issue more broadly anyhow. Joita, I've seen a couple of jurisdictions propose ideas like this before. I have to say this. I give them credit for creativity and perhaps thinking outside the pack, so to speak. <laughs> like, I, like, I, like, I do think there's some creativity to this, and I do think it could potentially curb a smidgen of smoking, but I mm -hmm. don't think it would be entirely all that effective, certainly not in the short or medium term. No, not in the short uh, or medium term, but I think the point of the policy, at least in theory, is not to tackle the short or the medium term as much as it is to tackle the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. the article that you sent around, there was some really interesting language where they said that this is a, a you know, a century old mistake that they're trying to rectify and that uh, they would like to create a situation where you have a generation that is free from smoking. Now, one of the things we know about, uh, and this, uh, and, the, and a lot of the research does corroborate this, is one of the things we know about the start of when people uh, about when people start to smoke is actually in their teens, uh, so 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Um, and so if in theory he's able to implement a change you could have a scenario where uh, according to research most people um begin smoking by the age of 21 if uh, by the age of 20 if you could get to a place where you can raise the the legal age to begin to buy cigarettes to, to 21 then you effectively protect um the 14 to 20 year old age cohort um this is of course contingent on the fact that everybody follows the law yes which, as because we know, 14, vices, that's it, 14 right? to 20 yeah. year olds never try to buy anything never under try age. to follow I the law so i, mean, I never that's... went to a dip and at 14 years old in montreal to try and buy beer <laughs> Unheard never of. never <laughs> no and that's no. where i think it falls apart a little bit but in theory at least it's uh it's a promising start and i would be curious to see um, how far they're actually able to go. The other thing that piqued my interest was exactly how far they intend to push this because, you know, 18 is the is the age of majority for a number of things. And you may have a couple of people hemming and hawing on the basis of age discrimination, saying that, well, if I'm 18 and I'm old enough to vote and old enough to have sex, then why can't I smoke? For example, in Ontario, the um, the legal age for drinking is 19, but no one's really brought a human rights complaint against the Ontario government to challenge that in any way. But there might be some arguments made about age mm. discrimination saying that younger people are being disenfranchised or uh, disallowed from making choices where, you know, in other scenarios, they're considered competent adults. So that would be a really interesting line to mm. pursue. And the last thing that really piqued my interest is exactly how far they intend to push this, because uh, pushing the age to about 21 seems pretty reasonable to me, but I find it very hard to fathom a scenario where the legal age to purchase cigarettes is 35 or dare I say 55 or even 65. So I'd be very, I would be very surprised if they can actually push it beyond a certain limit. I mean, from what I read of the policy, Rishi Sunak intends to keep pushing the age yep. Uh, up indefinitely. Yeah. I don't know how year. much success he's yeah. actually going to have with that. That, that was my point, understanding is that it 
Yeah, that was my understanding is that he pushed it out until it was, you know, 98, 99, something, something to that effect. <laughs> yeah. so w- way beyond what we're, what we're floating the, here. The, but the flip side is that this law wouldn't apply to places like Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland. No. So basically it would be yeah. pretty easy to get uh, cigarettes into the country from those places or, you know, uh, continental Europe where they never, ever smoke. No one ever smokes in continental <laughs> Europe. Uh, Michelle, I would also say if I were to offer a criticism in regards to the efficacy of this, I would say that it's also pretty narrow, especially in the the context of teens, the conversation now isn't teens smoking cigarettes, it's teens vaping. Vaping, right. yeah, totally, yeah. There's one of so many questions I have about this, and, and Joita kind of touched on the other big one, that of being enforcement. Um, I, I really am a little baffled as to how this works, and so I was extra baffled even as I read the article to see, wow, not only has this idea getting serious consideration here, it's actually already been implemented elsewhere. I think it's Australia or New Zealand, I forget which one, so forgive me, but one of those countries has already implemented a measure just like this. And I and I I, I feel like I'm missing something. Clearly these yeah. people <laughs> see value here that I'm simply not catching. And it's entirely possible that I'm just not well-informed enough to grasp it, but I, I, I'm a little perplexed as to why this is catching on. Okay, I've got to be careful in the way that I execute this. I've got to be very particular that I don't show uh, the pack that I'm opening here, but someone decided to do a little bit of research this morning from the Canadian perspective, because there is a new law in place in Canada that any cigarette sold needs to have a health warning printed right on the cigarette. So I went to the dip Dipenner this morning and I said, hey, Let's go investigate and see if that's the case. Cigarettes are not supposed to be sold now in Canada without the health warning printed right on the thing. So here we go. I've pulled it out, and I'm seeing some kind of writing on here. The font is very small, very okay. small. I cannot read it. So there's an accessibility side on this where, okay. uh, where right. like, you can't actually read the health warning that's supposed to be printed individually on these. You're but, blind or low vision. There's your out. But, jo- but Joita... Real, real journalism at work right Real, here, real journalism time, at work. Uh, Joita, <laughs> what's your perception of the Canadian policy here? Well, I think uh, it doesn't hurt, certainly. I mean, there are people who take the view that if putting the warning right on the cigarette stops even one more person from smoking, then it's worth it. But I think uh, it really depends on whether that is a deterrent to people or not. There could also be a point where if you're really keen on smoking, um, then you almost become desensitized to the warning. There's a really important perspective to consider here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not well enough informed about the human rights situation in Europe, so I won't go there or in the UK. Uh, but in Canada, at least, uh, there is a perspective that talks about protecting the rights of smokers uh, as people who have an addiction and so to uh, so when you factor that in as well you know that that does sort of add an interesting nuance or an interesting layer to this conversation for example with a lot of rental buildings and stuff they'll say but you know if you're a lifelong smoker you can't just snap your fingers and quit and so you have to make some allowances for that so uh, you asked about the health warning i think it might hopefully serve as a deterrent to some people but then if you've been smoking all your life you know the warnings there's been so much education about the harms and hazards of smoking you might just not look at it yeah, Michelle, uh, Michelle, as I pointed out, uh, it was pretty much illegible uh, what was written on that yeah. cigarette that I pulled out. So not super effective from a blind or low vision point of view. But I would also suggest that it's so small in the way that it's written. It, it wouldn't even like it, it's not going to move the needle at all for anyone who's actually a smoker. And again, in order to get, open the package to look at the individual cigarettes, you would have had to get past the massive health warnings all over the package itself that have been there for years and growing for years. 
I, I, I will admit that I, I, I might have a bit of a blind spot just on smoking cessation policy in general, because that one has also baffled me. I've, I've always kind of wondered how this is going to be effective. And yet time and again, it's proven to be so. There is data to back up this one. Canada's health warning policies have been able to help really draw down smoking percentages in this country. But right now, the last survey I saw was taken in 2020 and released in 2022, and it had the population of smokers that are on 10% in Canada yeah, for the yeah. population. So that's massively, massively lower than where it used to be, lower than the UK for sure. The, the comparable figure there is about 13% at the moment. That's a bigger population as well than we have here. So I think it's... I, 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 I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that I'm just bad at evaluating this stuff because clearly some of it does work. Yeah, I, it's definitely an observation that I've had in, in my life. I was at a wedding last weekend and there might have been two or three smokers, like maybe yeah. in, a, in a wedding of, of, of 100 people. You know, maybe maybe I'm underestimating the number a little bit, but but I would say in terms of seeing people around sort of the same smoking area, it was sort of two, three, four people, you know, it was the same people every time. So that my perception is that, yeah, like the smoking is is like the numbers are down and Michelle points out the data backs that up. Joita, what's your observation? Maybe walking around the streets of downtown, uh, taking deep breaths uh, what are you observing i'm not observing a lot of smokers that's for sure yeah. Um, yeah. no i think the numbers definitely decline but the one thing to keep in mind is that while the numbers of actual quote-unquote smokers has gone down the numbers of vapors uh including young people mm. has actually shot up yeah, and big time. i think i might have misread this so please correct me if i'm wrong but the policy in the uk that we originally started this conversation on does tackle vaping as part of the policy as well uh, but i think any smoking cessation efforts really have to tackle vaping now especially amongst young people in Canada, not least because um, as with cigarette manufacturers, people who are providing e-cigarettes um, are really heavily advertising to young people uh, with offering flavors. And I think you can blow little smoke rings. Don't ask me, you know, that's supposed to be cool and fun. So really having a serious conversation about uh, the advertising around vaping and how they're targeting young people is um, also a conversation that I think needs to be had in terms of thinking about smoking cessation amongst younger people. But it's not smokers so much more that I'm concerned about now. It's vaping because those numbers are getting. Yeah, really yeah, good. and it's also yeah. it's also just really it's really easy to fall into the vaping trap because you can basically do it anywhere, right? Like with mm -hmm. pretty much unnoticed. So it's definitely it's definitely a much more complex kettle of fish uh, to consider the uh, vaping side of the equation. Okay. Let's Let's uh, butt this topic out and move on to the next one. Coming up next, France is deploying a series of efforts to pinpoint a Paris bedbug infestation. I'm kind of curious who's accountable to deal with a city varmin insect infestation. What does accountability look like? Michelle, Chuita, and I will explore that question and others. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. One more topic to discuss, and it might give you the creepy crawlies. Bed bugs are taking over Paris, and Esdela Couture has the story. 
The French government vowing to deal with the widespread rise of bedbugs in Paris. Videos surfacing on social media show bedbugs spotted in public places like movie theaters and high-speed trains. Ooh. The French transport minister promising to convene a meeting with transportation providers this week to explore possible actions. Others are calling for the formation of a task force to tackle the spreading infestation. A recent study found one in 10 French households have already had to deal with bedbugs. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News. Paris. So this story has developed a little bit since Inez filed that report. France has been deploying sniffer dogs on public transit to locate some bugs. You also heard Inez mention the creation of a bed bug task force. Joita, this is where you'll have to forgive me for playing a little bit of an everyman. When I hear the word government task force on bed bugs, <laughs> I think to myself, what can a task force do that just hiring a bunch of exterminators can't? I think they can ruminate over lukewarm cups of bad coffee and uh, not so great muffins and try and think about the solution to this big uh, problem. Uh, no, you're right. And I think it's important to contextualize the formation of the task force. Uh, Paris is about a year away from the start of the Olympics. The world is watching. Uh, and so as a way to show that they are taking the problem seriously and to avoid bad press, especially tour tourists and travelers giving them a bad rep, I think they've set up the task force as a pro forma measure or, you know, just to show that they're actually taking the problem seriously. Uh, I, I suspect that there's not very much a task force could recommend uh, that, you know, obviously there's value in bringing exterminators in, but perhaps a tax task force could, uh, especially if they have exterminators on it, have conversations about um, how bed bug infestations actually spread the best treatments and how to prevent yeah. the spread of bed bugs. So there might be yeah. some value to it, but I think right now it's more a PR move than anything else. Yeah, but it, it, it certainly can develop a best practice. I think what I would argue, though, is there's probably already quite a bit of literature and research on uh, bed bugs. You don't need to start it over again. I, I think maybe that's one of my overall complaints when it comes to over-consultation and government processes because the, the issue is obviously quite urgent, Michelle, and I know that I'm kind of of cupping my ear to the crowd, playing everyman, saying, who needs government? Government's in the way. Just get rid of these bed bugs. But I, but I, do, I do feel it in my soul where I'm like, this maybe isn't the best use of resources and time when you could just be deploying a bunch of exterminators around the city and the country. I, d I definitely hear you. I really do. And, and <laughs> part of me does agree. But I will say that in broad strokes, Joita nailed it. I think in, in broad strokes, a task force can get to a root cause where an exterminator just treats the symptoms of the problem. And I have questions about how a bed bug infestation in a major city permeates into all these public spaces. Uh, if it's happening everywhere, perhaps I'm better off not knowing and, and ignore me. But if there is something more going on here, then there is, I think, some value in exploring what's going mm -hmm. on. But I'm with you. There is The task force definitely uh, has all the hallmarks of, of a body that won't necessarily accomplish much. I don't want to kneecap them right out of the gate and, and say that that's not going to happen. Who knows? But it. Uh, I, I do share your skepticism. I'll, I'll go yeah. with that. I, you know, Michelle, you did hit a key term right there. Public 
spaces because that does strike me when you think about something like public transit that does change my perspective on accountability and, and yeah. I sort of have these questions rolling around my head of who could be held accountable for that and what does accountability actually look like and, and, and Joita I know it's like it's kind of a weird question and it looks like I'm maybe trying to point fingers or do the blame game but knowing how bed bugs can spread it can actually happen quite simply and if you're picking that stuff up picking that stuff up simply by using public transit trying to get to work or trying to get to school like like that is a problem that probably demands some kind of accountability Yes, absolutely. It's not a weird question at all, because uh, when you think about the implications of people having to live with bed bug infestations, um, not just the financial implications, which can be huge, but the amount of time that people spend in you know, washing and drying all their clothes and putting things uh, in storage to hope to get rid of the bugs, yeah. dealing with the psychological torment. It's actually a pretty big question and an important question to ask, well, who is actually accountable for this? I was doing a bit of research, and it turns out that in the United States, one in five houses souls lives with a bed bug infestation oh man God. and that seems to be that 20 percent rate of infestation seems to be the average worldwide i would take that stat with a grain of salt but in some <sighs> ways it looks like france might be better than the norm you're less oh likely to get an infestation oh my god <laughs> but to your but bed to your bugs point, weird me out so hard i can't even deal with this <laughs> <laughs> it, I, and I don't blame you because I think for us, especially for those of us who can't see, um, unless you actually start to get bitten, uh, and oh. even then you may not be able to see the the bites on your skin. I mean, it's pretty uncomfortable, I'm told. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but I think there are unique challenges for someone who's blind. But I don't know if we really have time to get into that. Today. We actually, we actually, uh, Joita, we actually do have a couple minutes to get into that if you want to, Michelle. If you're interested as well, because that ended up being one of the cruxes of the daily poll that that got brought to the show earlier in the week about the creepy crawlers that give you the creepy crawlies and basically I asked the question to everybody across the show all day who all represented somewhere on the spectrum of blind or low vision and the, the general consensus was like this actually is a little bit of a bigger concern from an equity and accessibility point of view that if, if you're dealing with an infestation in your apartment unless you've got someone sighted there to help you with that like you could be like dealing with like ants cockroaches all kinds of stuff sorry Michelle I know you're not feeling well so I feel bad kind of like uh, putting no, these thoughts on the brain but like it's it's the truth. It's a reality. It is the truth, and and I'm, I, it. I mean, I, I, I can separate the fact that this is just my personal sticking point. This kind of stuff. I am a bit of a neat freak about my place, but it is. It's a broader issue, and I and I've I've known people anecdotally who've been burned quite badly by it, and it had very serious consequences stemming from not catching an infestation on time. That kind of stuff can lead to eviction, and worse. So yeah, it is a very genuine problem. Yeah, eviction, yeah. you might have to get rid of all your stuff. Like, That's like, right. like, yeah, yeah. like Judy, you were talking about stuff in storage. Like, sometimes you just have to, like, literally get rid get of rid your of furniture. Stuff. And, like, that's yeah, expensive. Yeah, your mattress and everything that's gone. And you can't, and maybe you don't have the money to replace it. So many of the people with, and many of the people, uh, many people with disabilities live on uh, social assistance. And the kind of support they provide in the case of a crisis like this is negligible. It's so minimal. the question about yeah. accountability is a really good one. And I want to make sure we don't entirely sidestep it. Yeah, so sorry, you asked sorry. about who about who should be accountable. And I think one of the people who is a key player in this is public transit. I think preventative uh, measures and bringing in treatments to prevent the spread of bed bugs in any public transit system is a really good standard. If you're not already doing it, you should. Uh, the mm -hmm. other people that I think should be held accountable are, uh, because bed bugs often spread in large building complexes, uh, apartment buildings and condo buildings, I think it should be the property owner that brings in preventative spraying and other measures to prevent the spread of bed bugs. Uh, what I've been told from people uh, who work in this business 
is that if one apartment has a bed bug infestation, 99% chances are the apartment below it, above it, and on either side will also have oh. an infestation. So I really uh, oh. say that if you're a landlord, you've got to take some proactive measures to prevent the uh, the the infestation of bed bugs in your building because it can really get out of hand very fast. Mm. And the last thing I'll say to my point about vulnerable populations is I think there needs to be some special attention paid, and that is where I suspect this task force, which has been somewhat a source of amusement for us, might actually come in useful. Talking about bed bug infestations in places like prisons or shelters where uh, we know the research says these infestations happen often and they're severe uh, and often they don't have the resources to tackle it. So I think the accountability question is really, really key to this and I'm glad you raised it. Michelle, what's your thought on the accountability side? Again, I, I, even though Joita gave me a lot of praise there for asking it, I still feel like it's a bit of an odd question because it sounds like I'm trying to point fingers, but what's your thought on the accountability side of this equation? No, I, I, I'm completely with Joita. I don't think it's a weird question at all. I think it's an important one and I and I agree with everything she said there's a lot of, of settings in which bug bed bugs pest control ought to perhaps be of higher regard than it is uh, I agree with Joey that public transit needs to be more proactive on that generally speaking in, in every city I would certainly if the Toronto Transit Commission came out and said oh hey here's our comprehensive bed bug plan that would make me very happy to see I don't know what their things are there in fact that and I think that's part of the issue right is that I know no one likes to talk about these issues. It's not exactly a public-friendly topic, but I don't think we know what measures are in place anywhere. So it's possible that people are taking accountability and we're not aware, but I think that needs to be discussed. Um, buildings, for sure. Long-term care homes would be another one where I'd like to mm -hmm. see some kind of um, some standards and ministry involvement in that kind mm. of thing. Um, I'm not resistant to higher orders of government imposing some guidelines on some of these public facing um, agencies or, or ministries or however you want to put it because as we can see the implications are big and, and an outbreak or an infestation in one unit or one building is rarely confined just mm. there so Let, let's wrap up here and I'm, I'm sorry that i keep making michelle so uncomfortable talking about the creepy crawlers but michelle what is the creepy <laughs> crawler fine. that keeps you up at night is it the spider the bed bugs the ants cockroaches millipedes what's the creepy crawler that like really gets that sets you off honestly all of them but the top three would be bed bugs for sure uh cockroaches would instantly be like a 10 alarm fire over here mm -hmm. and i will cop to an irrational phobia of mosquitoes so I'm not okay. a great camper. Okay, but well, I'm not. A, I'm not a great. I don't think anyone on this panel is necessarily a noted great outdoors person no, uh, through and true. through. Uh, I, I, for whatever reason, I've had so many battles with ants in my mm -hmm. life that like ants are one of these things that it seems everywhere I live, the ants come looking for me. It's because I snack. It's because I walk around snacking. The crumbs are always falling on the floor. Uh, that's why I eat over the sink like a rat sometimes. But uh, yeah, I, 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 I've got a real beef with ants. But Joita, what about you? What, what's the creepy crawler that uh, gets to set you off? off. Well, I think cockroaches for they're just so disgusting. Uh, yeah. But beyond that, ants and um, and also bed bugs really frighten me. Uh, the two types of infestations that I don't think I've had personally or know anyone who's had, but um, because I worked at a, a because I work at a housing and tenant rights agency, I've had uh, people call us and complain about these particular infestations. They really frighten me. Uh, one is termites, mm. and Ooh, the other one yeah. is this horrible thing called a pharaoh ant which I think is supposed to be very evil. Uh, so 
I, the reason I, I I'm kind of terrified of all pests and it was very I was very paranoid for a long time is because about seven years ago my manager uh, in a bit to make me more productive in the workplace said can you develop this resource called a guide to living with pests oh. and oh. I had to wow. research every conceivable pest I think it must have been 10 or 15 of them and how to look out for them and what the treatments for each of them were. Oh and I could gosh. not sleep at night oh. for fear that something was crawling all over me. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's brutal. Oh, I should have asked for hazard. Oh. It was horrible. Oh. Oh. Kidding. Oh. My deepest sympathies. Psychological <laughs> damage. <laughs> Holy smokes. Oh, okay. my God. Well, guys, I promise uh, this is the last time I'll make you talk about pests, at least this week. Michelle, you have yourself <laughs> a nice weekend. Thank you so much. Joita, you enjoy your weekend as Isn't well. Isn't it a long weekend? It is It is a long weekend. It is oh, a long weekend. weekend. Yeah, yeah, the three day. Well, not, not for Michelle, though. Not for Michelle. Not or, for Michelle. Or, or, sure or, is for Michelle. Oh. I'm off, baby. <laughs> Look at this. Michelle McQuig. Right? Actually, long weekend like a normal person. Big, big flex. Big flex by <laughs> Michelle. That's awesome. Well, guys, have a great weekend. That's Michelle Thank McQuig, you. the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. And Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, I've got a short regional news update. Then Brock Richardson is going to do a big weekend look ahead in the world of sports. And Irene Solomon will talk about a fundraiser in support of Ukrainian troops that's taking place in the greater Toronto area next week. So lots coming your way in the next segment, including a fun musical interlude from friend of the show and friend of the network, Lucas Hanneman. I'm telling you, you don't want to go anywhere. The next segment of Now with Dave Brown is going to be excellent. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, 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 October the 6th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, author Matt Osman is featured in this month's episode of My Life in Books. The host of that podcast, Red Sail, will give you the inner glimpse into the episode. Staying in the world of books and literature, the Writers' Trust released their shortlist for the Atwood Describes Her Favorite Finalist. And a fundraiser is taking place next week at the Ukrainian Cultural Center in Toronto. Irene Solomon tells you's update. Starting in British Columbia, there is some new data about people experiencing homelessness in BC. Brenda Molina Navidad has the story. A statement from the Housing Ministry says a count of the homeless conducted in 20 communities over a 24-hour period showed an increase compared with previous counts in 2020 and 2021. It says the counts provide a snapshot of information about the gender, age, ethnicity and health of those experiencing homelessness. The ministry points out that Indigenous people and former youth in care continue to be significantly overrepresented. Housing Minister Ravi Kalon says the government's belief that more needs to be done to help the most vulnerable has only been reinforced. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press.
over to the prairies. The Calgary Flames are officially getting a new $800 million arena. The city and province announced that the $1.2 billion event center and entertainment district has been finalized. Calgary Sport and Entertainment Corporation President John Bean says he's encouraged by the development. It's really important for the city of Calgary and for all our fans and all the citizens, quite frankly, that we solve the riddle on such an important piece of infrastructure for the city. And we're delighted that we don't have to be worrying about where's our home for the next 35 years. And we can get ourselves focused on A, getting this thing designed and built. And then maybe we get focused on winning a Stanley Cup in here as well. Design and preparatory construction work will start right away. The opening date is expected in 2026 or 2027, based on the way that Canada builds infrastructure. I would bet on the latter. And over to the Atlantic, Nova Scotia is changing the way Airbnb and other short-term rentals are regulated. The provincial government says it will increase registration fees for temporary accommodations. The increase is based on the size of the community they're in. The province is also raising fines for breaking registration rules. The province hopes this will create more long-term housing options. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, beginning in the world of Parasport, the women's U25 wheelchair basketball worlds are on and Canada has been very busy this week. Yes, they have. They've been playing uh, multiple games on multiple days. This is a tough thing to do when you are a national level athlete, but I guess they assume that because you're under 25, you can handle this. Uh, let's start with telling you that Canada defeated South Africa 50 to 24. Then Canada was defeated by Thailand, who is the host country, 41-37. Then we had a bounce-back game against Japan, where they won 48-36. And then Canada played Germany last night for the second game and lost 47-30. So that means so they have a 2-2 two two. record yeah. at this moment in time. Not sure what that means as they move on for the second round, but we'll find out in the coming days, um, or the coming hours, I should say, as to whether they advance or they don't. But uh, if you want to uh, find out more information, go to the International Wheelchair Basketball Federation to find out all of the details in regards to that. And uh, the other thing I have for you is that Canada has a senior women's national team for wheelchair basketball has announced their next coach, and it will be pa Paul Bowes, who will be at the helm at the uh, Parapan Am Games. He was originally involved with the Germany program, and so he will be taking over as head coach beginning at the Parapan Am game. So that's all your news in the wheelchair basketball world. Oh, very good. Well, the women's U25 wheelchair basketball worlds are going to continue throughout the weekend, as will a bunch of other sports. Brock got Major League Baseball playoffs going on, really getting started in earnest tomorrow, which is super exciting. You've got lots of college football. You've got the end of the NHL preseason. You've got NFL football. I'm sure there's some car racing of some sort along the way. Brock, what's on your radar this weekend? What's jumping out to you? What is on my radar? Uh, baseball, really, to be perfectly honest with you. I am all set to uh, take in that over the weekend. Plus, you've got a what, couple of... What's, what's, what's your World Series? So let's do this right now. What's your World Series prediction? Who's beating who in the World Series? My World Series prediction. Hmm. I'm going to put the Los Angeles uh, 
the the Los Angeles Dodgers, and I'm going to say who's coming out of the East. Let's go with the Houston Astros. I know Ooh, that's not a popular opinion, rematch. but I, I'm going to say that they're going to do this again for the second straight year. Yeah, I, I've told you that I'm on the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks uh, bandwagon right now. I uh, I like a couple players on that team. Corbin Carroll, the rookie, has been an absolute revelation and sensation for that team this year. Kettle Marte is just a phenomenal, phenomenal baseball player. Uh, Blue Jays fans might want to get back on board with Lourdes Goriel and Gabriel Marino. There's a lot of good team, a lot of good players on that Diamondbacks team, and it would be uh, nice to get a little bit of fresh blood in the playoffs. So what I would love to see, Brock, is the Baltimore Orioles and the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series. That's what I would like to see. What I'm actually predicting is the Atlanta Braves coming off their historic offensive season. Uh, the best statistical offensive season since 1929, the Atlanta Braves, and uh, their high-powered offense. And I think they're going to uh, run into the Texas Rangers. As you know, I am very, very keen and fond of the Rangers infield. I think that's one of the best hitting infields in all of baseball. So I, I think we're going to, what I would like is the Diamondbacks and the Orioles. What I think we're going to get is the Rangers and the Braves. Interesting. I, I'm not quite sold on the Rangers as in, can they be consistent enough over the next chunk of the playoffs? But we'll yeah, see. They looked real good. See they, how they could do that. Yeah, yeah. They looked real good against Tampa Bay, real good against Tampa Bay in those uh, two games earlier this week. Those bats were uh, popping off in a big way. Okay. Brock, what about the football side of things? What's uh, what's on the radar for Sunday? Uh, I want to see beyond for my bills. I want to see if the Philadelphia Eagles can continue to remain undefeated against what seems to be a, a struggling LA Rams team yeah. struggling, struggling that, but scrappy struggling but scrappy and the other game that's on my radar is the Cowboys versus the San Francisco 49ers I've told you that I'm big on uh, the San Francisco 49ers and I just want to see them continue to roll on through which it'll be an interesting matchup against the Cowboys yeah that is the, the least. that's the primetime game on Sunday night that's an excellent excellent primetime game and uh, I I do believe I'm I'm with you I think the 49ers might be the best team in all of football but Dallas is another one of those teams that I believe is very very good so uh, I think you'll hear us use the measuring stick cliche a couple times here in the next few weeks that's a big time measuring game a uh, measuring stick game on Sunday night. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. Thank you. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. It's Friday. Let's get the vibes going with some tunes. Give this a listen. LH Express with their song Hot Minute. That voice may have sounded familiar to you. It's Ottawa bluesman Lucas Hanneman 
Lucas, of course, is an excellent, excellent guitarist, and he's also a member of the blind and low vision community. So Lucas has always been very generous with his time when it comes to AMI, and turns out LH Express is going to be generous with their time next week. They're playing a fundraiser supporting Ukrainian troops. Dine with Purpose takes place October the 13th at the T. Shevchenko Ukrainian Community Center in the greater Toronto area. Irene Solomon is one of the organizers of the event. Irene is also a director of AMI live shows, including a couple days on the show this week. Hey, good morning, Irene. Good morning. How are you? Irene, I'm fantastic. Thank you for taking a little bit of time this morning. Why did you get involved in this fundraiser? Uh, so I am a member of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Toronto branch, and we do a lot of events like that. We organize rallies, we organize fundraisers to help. Uh, in this case, it's the troops uh, for that are fighting. And it comes at an, an interesting time, especially what's going on in the news right now, the latest bombing of civilians in Ukraine, and the, the difficulty for the Ukrainian government to try to keep uh, support for what's going on. It's really, really hard as a person with family in Ukraine. I mean, I'm mm. a proud Canadian, and we are very thankful to the Canadian government and for Canadians in general who, you know, support us, but we feel like we have to do more. And so this fundraiser is going to be a dinner and a concert uh, uh, featuring Lucas. And every time I hear them, I just I just want to dance. They are so amazing. I was introduced to them when I uh, was working on Kelly and Ramya, and they announced uh, when they dropped their fourth album. So yeah. they have graciously decided to uh, help us out. So you mentioned the musical side with LH Express. Again, they're just incredible. Lucas is a tremendous guy. All the members of the band, super, super cool. But you mentioned the dinner side of this. That's how you know you can yep. catch my attention in the morning. What <laughs> are some of the good eats that are going to be on the menu? So I should mention that the chef is the chef from Say What restaurant in uh, Toronto, St. Oh, Lawrence wow. uh, Centre. Yeah. And he's got, I'm just going to read it because I can't, because it just sounds delicious, the, the description. So it starts with shrimp poached in beef fat, garlic and herbs, mm. served with fresh made cocktail sauce and pickled vegetables. You have your choice of chicken shevchenko beet, basil, and black garlic marinated chicken thigh, rustic garlic mashed potatoes, green beans, and rainbow coleslaw. There is a vegetarian option. And for dessert, there's cheese and chutney stilton served with cranberry, oh. frangelico, onion, compote, or a pumpkin tart. Oh, I would oh have it all, God. to be oh honest. Oh, my gosh. Right? That sounds incredible, Irene, talking my language. Uh, Irene, you mentioned the importance of this fundraiser, supporting Ukrainian troops who are on the front line. I've got to bit of a weird question for you on this though what's the balance between making this event fun and with mm. the food and the music but also really acknowledging the somberness of its purpose you know, you've hit the nail on the head. We have this issue every single time. Uh, I feel it's hard to have a, or say, for example, a dance or something like that, when you know that people are dying, when people are, you know, putting their lives on the line. However, life goes on here and in other places, and even in Ukraine, people are trying to have, like, some kind of normalcy, going to cafes and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's, it is a fine balance. But this is why we've called it Dine with Purpose, because you're going to have a great meal, you're going to have fantastic music, um, but 
but by doing something so simple and, and so joyous, you're actually helping other people. And I think as long as we mention the fact that why we're doing this and for what purpose it exists, uh, I think that's that's how we're trying to strike the balance with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Irene, what are the relevant contact details? I know there's some timeline stuff that's important here because the event's next Friday. Right. So in order, if you want to participate in the dinner, we kind of need to know by the end of Sunday, because we have to order the food and know how many people are coming. Uh, but after that, the following week, we're going to do concert only tickets. But the the way you do it is you e-transfer $95 per person for the dinner to UCC Toronto at bellnet.ca. And then you will get a confirmational email because there's no physical tickets. Uh, saying that you know you've we've received your money and then everyone will get an email from me asking them to make their dinner selections for the concert only next week it'll be $60 to the same address and again a confirmational email will be sent out so yeah i mean i don't think you can have a better combination of fantastic i mean lucas henneman has performed on stage with robert cray with the dave matthews band and yeah. every time i hear their music i'm just like they're they're amazing they're awesome and the fact that they're willing to help us out is like we're just so lucky yeah fantastic fantastic well irene thank you for this thanks for taking a little bit of time this morning best of luck uh, in the last couple of days putting this together i know that there's always uh, a little fire here or a little fire there to put out so best yeah. of luck to you and your colleagues on this one Thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a great show, you guys, the Thanks. rest of the show. Thanks, Irene. That's Irene Solomon, an organizer of Dine with Purpose, a fundraiser for Ukrainian frontline defenders. A few more details to pass along here that's going to be taking place in Etobicoke at 482 Horner Avenue. It's next Friday, the 13th. Doors open at 6.30. The three-course dinner runs from 7 to 8.30 p.m. As Irene mentioned, if you want the dinner ticket, it's $95 per person. And to reserve a spot, send an e-transfer to UCC Toronto at bellnet.ca, UCC Toronto at bellnet.ca. On the way to commercial break, here's a little bit more LH Express. This is a song called That's the Truth. up after the break author matt osman is featured in this month's episode of my life in books red sale is the host of that podcast he'll give you the inside glimpse this is now with dave brown on ami tv
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. AMI-audio's My Life in Books podcast is featuring two new episodes this month, including a feature interview about an English drama set in the 17th century. The book is called The Ghost Theater by Matt Osman. Red Sale is the host of My Life in Books. Hello, Red. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So as mentioned, this ghost, the ghost theater by Matt Osman, it's set in the 17th century. Why do you think there's so much interest in that particular period in English history? Well, I think it's a great period of stability in English history. After the Spanish Armada, 1588, Britain was really at peace for the best part of a century. It had a very stable queen under Queen Elizabeth I, and then relative stability uh, under James and Charles I. And it just saw a real outpouring of creativity. It's the time of Shakespeare, of Christopher Marlowe, of Spencer. You know, great, great storytelling. And... Um, and also a time of trade where Britain literally ruled the waves uh, without any of the baggage of the slave trade at that point. And it was a trading nation and it was getting ideas and materials from all over the world. It was a great melting pot. Mm, yeah, okay, I, I think you've made that argument quite nicely. It was a time of the Enlightenment. It was pre-industrial, mm. but it was post-Enlightenment and the world was a different place. So the Ghost Theatre, what, what, what struck you about this book? Why did it really catch your interest? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Firstly, its author, Matt Osman, is the bassist and founder member of the British rock group Suede. And uh, as viewers will know, I'm, I'm of that age where <laughs> I went to a lot of gigs in the 1990s, including a lot of Suede gigs, and Matt Osman can do very little wrong. But this book is just an exploration of the art of being a performer. It's set in a theatre, in a real-life theatre, the Blackfriars Theatre, in 1601, and it lifts the curtain to going was all about. Back then, a third of all... Sorry, two-thirds of all Londoners went to the theatre. Wow. didn't matter if you were rich or poor. It was the TV of its time. It was the only show in town. And the groundlings went in for virtually no money and stood and got rained on. And the nobles would be sitting up in their boxes in relative comfort. And, and they were watching great theatre. Theatre from all over Europe uh, in English. That's the thing. And they were having these stories told to them. And Matt Osman has done a lot of research into this. And he takes two... Well, one child actor... And, and a young woman who gets involved with the theatre, and he just shows what it was like to be a youngster, a great performer, a celebrity of your time, but also be totally and utterly indentured, in, controlled by rich, unscrupulous theatre mm, owners. Mm. These, these kids, as I say, were the celebrities of their time, but they had no power. You had a chance to interview Matt, which is super cool. We've got a clip from the interview. He explains his inspiration for the novel. I had this idea very early on that I wanted to write about kind of like an artistic movement, like, like punk or Dada or something like that, but set it back in history. 
but I didn't have any definite time of, of when it would be. Originally, I kind of set it as a kind of the Sex Pistols in um, Victorian England, but it all got a bit kind of musical and folk music, mm. um, and I couldn't really make it work. And then I saw this incredible uh, documentary about the Blackfriars Boys, about kids who'd been kidnapped to, to perform on stage, and the connections there with, with, the, with these kids who only really have power in the kind of hour and a half they're on stage and the rest of the time, you know, they're, they're actually possessions. Um, it just made everything flow. So it, it, I actually had to spend a lot of time learning about the Elizabethan period um, because I didn't know much about it. It, was, it. it wasn't like I thought, right, I have to set something in that year and I'll work out what it is. It, it was the other way around, really. Red, you and I have both expressed our love of literature and love of books. And when you mm. hear Matt talk about his inspiration, that really speaks to the power of books. Because I don't know if you'd be able to get a TV show or a movie greenlit with this kind of story, but in the world of literature and writing, you don't need someone to greenlight it. You can just have a really creative idea and bring it to the table and try to flesh it out. Exactly. There are no rules. There are no parameters. And I think that's what's really, really exciting about especially 21st century storytelling, because we've got all these resources. You can go off and look up the Blackfriars Boys on a search engine. You can, you can make yourself an expert within a week just by getting all this information that's that's open source, all these things that have been put on Pro Project Gutenberg, and you can just let your mind fly into various different directions. And, and he talks about the alchemy of storytelling. Now, 16th century was the last time when there was no separation between science and magic, or science and literature. It was all just looked as one big area of learning mm. where you could just go anywhere. And, and, and being an author, you have a passport to just go anywhere in history. So interesting. Red, you know I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and you've been staying busy this month with two episodes because it wasn't just the literature you were grappling with. You also got a really cool opportunity to interview Effie McMahon. Effie is considered to be one of the absolute best book narrators out there. Why did you want to interview Effie, and how was that experience for you? I love Aoife's voice. I mean, she has read so many of my favorite books over the years. She she is the go-to narrator. Hopefully we'll hear a clip of her in a minute. She she reads Sally Rooney's books. She reads Marianne Keyes' books. She reads Claire Keegan's books. And I, I just feel like I know her. And, and I'd never met her before. I've met quite a few narrators over the years. I used to work in a talking book studios. And these are the people who bring these books to life for the likes of me who just cannot read the print. And Aoife could read the telephone directory and I would still be a little <laughs> puddle on the floor going, I love your voice. And it's not just that I've got Irish heritage. I mean, I, I think it is just, she's Irish, obviously. She is the go-to Irish narrator. And I think there is something about Irish storytelling 
that is is the oral tradition it lends itself to being spoken mm. and i i got the opportunity to get her on the show and believe you me i took it like a shot <laughs> okay let you you teased it here nicely you're you're going to get to hear effa's voice effa was involved in a production of a canadian movie called random passage she talked to you about her involvement in the project let's hear what she had to say that was my very first job ever. Wow. So I was still in drama school and we were due to graduate that year, but I, I left early. I left around May of that year to uh, be swept off to Newfoundland and play that wonderful feisty woman. And I am a bit of a country mouse, really, or I was. I, I live in, in London in the UK now. But at that time, I just spent my first three years ever in a city and to land in Newfoundland just felt like coming home. And it was wonderful because for Random Passage, it was a fictionalized account of sort of real life stories, if you like, of the first settlers there. And they built the set from scratch as it would have been. You could have actually lived in the houses. So it was beautiful. It, it felt so real. That as an actor, you weren't imagining, it wasn't blue screen, it wasn't any of that. You were in the landscape and in the actual homes. So that did a lot of the work for us. But it was a wonderful first experience, I have to say. Red, uh, you are right. I'm officially a puddle. Uh, that is just <laughs> such a beautiful, velvet, smooth voice. You can really tell how that would be pleasant to listen to across an entire audiobook. I'm curious what your takeaway was from the interview. What did you learn after the interview or during the interview? Um, we talked an awful lot about the art of being a narrator. It's not just you rock up and you open a copy of the book and you start reading it. There is an enormous amount of homework that goes in uh, to narrating an audio book. She told me how she marks up the script of the book uh, now on a, on an iPad used to be on a paper script. She marks them up in different colours so that, you know, the purple voice is the Glaswegian and the orange voice is the voice from Toronto so that she can keep track of them. She told me how she, she'll sit on a bus and she'll just, her ears will be alive all the time going, oh, that sounds a bit like an Icelandic accent. I'll have that because there's bound to be an Icelandic person coming up and she'll just make little notes. And then she gave me some great tips, which are actually good for the likes of you or me. Um, I don't know if you ever get a rumbly tummy uh, on, <laughs> on air. Um, well, the best thing to stop a rumbly tummy is eat a banana. Kills it stone dead. And do you ever get thatch mouth? You know where it feels like your tongue is beginning to stick to the top of oh your mouth? Oh my gosh, red all the time. Eat a green apple. Well, actually, just suck the juice out of a green apple. You don't even have to chew it. <laughs> Somehow, it's like a magic wand. It took, took it away. I have to tell you that I'm just I'm getting over COVID. So I was feeling a little blah before I got on the phone, to, uh, got on the line to you. And I won't show it to you because it's quite chewed. But there is a green <laughs> apple just sitting to my right, and 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 my tongue is moving quite fine. So she was she was priceless. She was absolutely oh. wonderful. And if you want a recommendation for the best book that I have read in the last five years, and she narrates it, it's a book called Falling Animals by Sheila MacDonald. 
and uh, sorry, Sheila Armstrong. Gosh, get the name of the author right, Red. <laughs> Sheila Armstrong, Falling Animals, and I will be featuring it next month. So any Ooh. listeners who want oh. to steal a march, get onto that, and I guarantee you, you will fall asleep with Ether's beautiful dulcet tones in your ear. It's perfect. Red, it's always lovely to catch up. I'm glad you're feeling a little bit better. Glad the green apple helped. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Always a pleasure, Dave. Go well. That is Red Sale, the host of My Life in Books. You can find that show on all podcasting platforms. Just search for My Life in Books. In a moment, Drake dropped a brand new single today. Amanda Shikarchi will react in the entertainment report. But first, Google is showing off a new smartwatch. Mike Dubusky straps in for another edition of Tech Trends. Android Authority's C. Scott Brown says Google's first Pixel watch was a compelling smartwatch, hampered by its battery life. It was just impossible to recommend. Every time we we talk about it, we would say, it's great for these all reasons, but please don't buy it because it'll, it'll last like six hours. The Pixel Watch 2 adds a new processor and a slightly larger battery. Neither one of these things is super exciting when it comes to power draw, but when you combine them together, you get, okay, maybe we're going to get better battery life out of this watch. Everything else, Brown says is largely the same, including the design and the $350 price. That's more than the equivalent Samsung watch, which runs the same software. For the general consumer, they're going to go into their carrier or whatever, and they're going to see two watches on a shelf. Both of them are going to be Wear OS. One's going to say Samsung, one's going to say Google, and one's going to be, you know, more expensive. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Amanda Shikarchi, Drake dropped a new album today. A new, al you, new yes. album and new single. Yep, new album. So Drake yesterday dropped the surprise single 8 a.m. in Charlotte, which is off of his new album to All the Dogs, which is out today. Drake shouts out different celebrities in the single, like Michael Jackson and 21 Savage. To get a sense of the unique sound, here is a clip from the song. I say we gotta talk about us. I feel like Jordan Peele. Could tell I'm getting under your skin like an orange peel. Cause your words don't match your actions like a foreign film. And now silence in the lamb like the horror film. Things get quiet after me stating the obvious. What do you think of the song? Uh, I listened to it this morning, Amanda. I don't know if they're going to take away my Canadian passport or my Torontonian uh, citizenship. I'm getting a little bored of Drake's sound. I, like, I feel like this song is a song that I've heard him do a million different times with the little choral hook in the background and sort of the chill, laid-back, slow rapping. I don't know, Amanda. I'm just, I think I'm just a little bit bored of Drake at this point. I, I, I'm looking for him to maybe get a little bit more inventive with the work that he's doing. Really? I. That's definitely an interesting point. I, I actually really like the lyrics i feel like they're very clever yeah i know what you mean like the production is definitely similar to his previous stuff but i never really used to listen to rap a lot but really over the years i've started to take in mind about the story aspect that goes into rap music so i quite liked it yeah, oh, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing the overall talent of Drake or uh, dismissing the genre. I just I just think uh, this could have used a little bit more inspiration. Uh, it is cool that he's uh, playing some shows in Toronto tonight. Uh, what's not cool is tickets are like $400. So uh, that's that's not that's not awesome. Amanda, thank you for this. Have a great weekend.
Thank you so much. That's Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. Ahead of Thanksgiving weekend, Alex Smythe wants to know what our ideal Thanksgiving feast is going to look like. And I'm going to surprise a lot of you. I'm taking a different approach. I'm quibbling with Alex. Not really quibbling with Alex, but I'm going to neuter his topic a little bit. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. <laughs> It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Thanksgiving is this weekend. Alex Smythe, you're wanting to know what my and Ramya Emuthin's ideal Thanksgiving meal plate looks like. Yeah, Dave, it's, uh, I, I want to find out what everyone is putting on their plate this Thanksgiving. So, you know, you get your, your full array of options. You can choose whatever you want. Tell me how you're building your plate. It's an endless buffet of all the options. So Ramya, you're up first. How are you building your Thanksgiving plate? I am going to go back to my roots of Thanksgiving, which was Friendsgiving with my friends, uh, who most of them are Jamaican. So we ended up every year doing Friendsgiving with Jamaican food. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite version of this is, I know, my favorite version of this is my friend Sadine, her mother's chicken stew, rice and peas, uh, coleslaw, potato salad. And sometimes she would do ham on the side, but I, you know, lots of protein out there. And then rum cake for dessert which is like fruitcake but infused with all the rum oh and all gosh. the wine that you actually ever want in your cake Oof, yeah that's okay my favorite. that's gonna be a hard plate to beat alex alex <laughs> i'm taking your question and spinning this in a little bit of uh maybe like honestly a too earnest a direction but food prices as you know are like through the roof so i want to share with you my idea for what would be a very affordable but still indulgent Thanksgiving meals. So Alex, I'm not doing your turkey. I'm going to the pork chop section. I saw a couple beautiful mm. pork chops at the uh, pork chop section at the grocery store for $4 yesterday. So $4 for the pork chops. Then I saw the frozen broccoli, $2.50 for a bag of the generic brand frozen broccoli. So get a bag of that. Get a box of boxed stuffing for $1. It was also on sale. And they get me a box of mac and cheese to put on the side with that. So give me pork, broccoli, mac and cheese, and some boxed stuffing. Your total cost on that entire meal is going to be under $9, Alex. There you go, Dave. Clean, efficient. You still get a, a ton of choice. Hey, I, I can get behind it. I, I, I'm sure I've in the past I've had meals very similar for that. So for me, I'm a bit of the the traditional, but there's also the cultural aspect. You know, I'm I'm German, so I, you're going to get a couple of the German sides in it. So. Obviously, I start off with turkey. I love turkey, especially, you know, the white meat. You can just douse it in gravy for the sides. I love roasted Brussels sprouts. I, I think they are very underrated. They're very tasty. Uh, for in the German side, we have these like thick, starchy dough balls called clays. They are amazing for soaking up gravy. Mm -hmm. I'm getting a couple of those on there. I'm getting some blue or red cabbage, as you call it. You know, it's, it's that like acidity. It really cuts through all the fattiness that's going on there. And then obviously having some cranberry sauce on the side. I do like the whole cranberries. I'm not opposed to the can. 
I'm with you with the box stuffing, Dave, and finish it off with a nice pumpkin pie. Yeah, okay, yeah, pumpkin pie, good call, like that one. I'm a little bit more of an apple man when it really comes down to it, but I recently found where they keep the key lime pie at my grocery store, Ooh. so uh, that blows up my budget right there, though, the key lime pie ain't <laughs> cheap. Alex, thank you for this. Enjoy your Thanksgiving weekend. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you for a Friendsgiving weekend, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Okay, so Android 14 is now available to download on the Pixel devices, and John Beeler is going to tell us more about that on our app update. We'll talk about other things as well, of course. Uh, also, Major League Baseball is in full swing, or the playoffs are, and Brock Richards is going to talk about that, amongst other things, on our sports update. And so he joins us on Fridays along with you guys. And it's been booked week, Book Week. We're uh, wrapping that up tomorrow. Lots of discussions about that on our chatty bookshelf today. And I wanted to plug that on this week's episode of um, Audiobook Review, AMI Audiobook Review with myself and Jacob, we're talking a lot about book bands also. Oh, yeah. I love the work you guys are doing on the Audiobook Review. And uh, Later in the month, I'm going to be popping on the audiobook yes, review. You we're are. going to be uh, talking about uh, one of my favorite books of all time, Success by Martin Amos. So, uh, looking forward to that one. Ramya, have a great day, great weekend. Talk to you next week. You too, Dave. Talk next week. That's Ramya Emwithin, the co host of Kelly and Ramya, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming your way next, the Writers Trust released their shortlist for the Atwood Gibson Fiction Prize. Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will talk about her favorite. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Writers' Trust of Canada has unveiled a couple of short lists. It's always an exciting time in the world of literature, and Karen McKay has some details. Karen is the Manager of Communications at the Centre for Equitable Library Access. Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, heading into a long weekend. Karen, let's start with the Atwood Gibson Fiction Prize. What book on this shortlist is your favorite? I know it's unfair to make you pick just one, but which one jumps off the list for you? Uh, I have a soft spot for Emma Donahue. So I think Learned by Heart by her would be the book that I would like to focus on. So this is a, a really beautiful novel. It's based on a true story of two young girls who fall in love in um, England at a boarding school. And it's based on the uh, diaries of a woman named Anne Lister. She had a 5 million word secret journal that she kept in code. Uh, and she's been dubbed the first lesbian, actually. And so this uh, novel sort of follows the relationship between Anne Lister and Eliza Rain, who's a an orphan heiress uh, of mixed race, and they're both sent to this boarding school and they fall in love. The The journal is um, still exists today, and so the majority of the diary deals with her daily life, not just her sexuality. It provides really interesting clues on information about social and political and economic events at the time. So I'm really looking forward to reading that one. So that's the fictional side of this one. There's also a Balsilli prize, the Writers' Trust announcing that short list. And this prize is for public policy. So the prize is for a nonfiction book about social, economic politics or other topics in that, uh, in that realm. So among the nominated titles, which one jumps out to you? 
Well, the one that I like is our tribal future, how to channel our foundational human instincts into for a force for good by David R. Sampson. And um, I picked this one for a couple of reasons. One, because it's Thanksgiving. And so we sort of are returning to our tribes, many of us. Um, this gives us a really interesting insight into tribalism in general. He's done a lot of research on how it can be both a force for good, but also um, we know that it sort of conjures up some, some elements of bigotry or xenophobia and uh, sometimes some violence. So he talks about both sides of this important issue and how we can actually use tribalism to um, call to our better selves, I think. So this one, I think I love this sort of book. So this is an interesting one for me. In both cases, the winners are going to receive $60,000. The fiction prize is going to be announced on November the 21st. The uh, nonfiction prize is going to be announced on November the 28th. And the full list of finalists is available at writerstrust.com. And uh, all the books on the short lists that were mentioned today are available in Sila's collection. Karen, speaking of Sila's collection and speaking of Thanksgiving, you've got some featured titles as the theme of Thanksgiving weekend, starting with... Thanksgiving, How to Cook It Well by Sam Sifton and Sarah Rutherford. So if you're cooking Thanksgiving dinner this weekend and you haven't got a clue, this is a great book for you. It walks through every step from planning the meal right through to washing the last plate. There's recipes for side dishes, pies, cocktails. There's instructions for setting the table uh, and setting the mood of the day and how to divvy up the leftovers. It really is covering every aspect of Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> There's lots of reassuring advice. Uh, Sam Sifton was the founder of the New York Times cooking section, so he knows what he's talking about. He also is a, a guy after my own heart. So he says in the book, there's very little that can't be fixed that cannot be fixed with butter. So, you know, butter is a, a favorite of most of us, I think. Uh, and he also sort of tends towards the very conservative for Thanksgiving. So he says there should be no swordfish at Thanksgiving, no beef tenderloin, ham is an abomination. There should be a turkey. Turkey is why you're there. So uh, it's, it's a fun book, but it's got some great recipes and it's really a, a great thing if you're starting out with your Thanksgiving uh, meals. Karen, I'm by no means a butter connoisseur, but I was out in Huron County last weekend for a wedding, and there was fresh butter milked from the cows that day for the dinner rolls. Oh boy, maybe I am going to become a, a butter connoisseur at this rate. Yeah, if you can get fresh butter, there's just it's a world of difference between that and what you can pick up at the supermarket. I think sure. I think my condo has rules about cows, though. I don't think I can keep a cow in my condo. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that would be a no go. Uh, Karen, let's jump over to something. Oh, service dog. No, yeah, service cow. It's my service cow. Um, oh my goodness, that's a whole different kettle of fish. There was someone who tried to bring their emotional support alligator to a Philadelphia Phillies game last week. Uh, oh dear. They did not let the alligator in. Uh, Karen, let's uh, jump onto something a little bit more serious because there are a lot of different components of the Thanksgiving experience. So one of the books you want to highlight is Truth Telling, Seven Conversations About Indigenous Life in Canada by Michelle Good. So I chose this one for a few reasons. Thanksgiving is sort of tied to our colonial past, maybe not quite so much as it is in the um, in the U.S., but certainly it's something that's inescapable. And especially on the heels of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, I think this is a topic many of us are looking to address more thoughtfully, and this book can really help. Uh, Michelle Good won the 2021 Governor General's Award for fiction for her debut novel, Little Indians. 
She's um, a lawyer and she's advocated for residential school survivors. And she takes um, a look at a variety of, of things in this book through a series of essays and explores the historical and the contemporary Indigenous experiences in Canada, everything from uh, racism and broken treaties and cultural pillaging through to the value we place on Indigenous lives and the importance of Indigenous literature to help change those conversations and opinions. Uh, it's a, a sharply written book. It's well-researched. It's uncompromising, but I think it's really important. Um, it's essential reading for anyone who really wants to acknowledge the past and the way forward, and it's a great place to start if you're really wanting to delve into this topic mm. a little bit uh, uh, deeper. So a good one for maybe some interesting conversations around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Another one you want to highlight is Still Life by Louise Penny. Yeah, so this book uh, sort of has a major theme or plot point for Thanksgiving. The book opens with the discovery of a dead body in the woods on Thanksgiving weekend, which brings Chief Inspector Amand Gamash and his colleagues from uh, Quebec into a small oh. village in the eastern town. Oh, it's one of the Go Inspector so, Gamash books. Okay. It's, it is. So this is actually the very first in the series. Um, and I think she's up to 21 now books in the series. But if you want to start at the beginning, this is a great one. And it's, it's it's centered around Thanksgiving. Um, a, a beloved artist, Jane Neal, is is the one that was killed um, in this small town of Three Pines, and and so uh, it it leads Gamash to come and and solve the mystery. Uh, Louise Penny has a real fantastic touch in terms of writing what some people call cozy mysteries, but she brings a real literary eye to the to the um, to the work, and it sort of elevates it into more serious literary fiction. Uh, it's probably one that will keep you from falling asleep or falling into a turkey coma after dinner. <laughs> Always got to fight against the tryptophan wherever you can this weekend, uh, Karen. Exactly. What about? I think this one's also a little bit in the mystery realm too. Trapping turkeys in Thanksgiving by Tanya. Cappies. It is. So this is also part of a series. This one's number 28 in the series, and it's a cozy mystery. This one is pure fun. Um, unlike the Louise Penny book, which is a little more literary, this one is full of Southern charm and quirky characters, uh, and, and la it's laugh-out-loud funny in places. So it centers around Thanksgiving. The main character, Mae West, uh, is bound and determined to stay in shape for her wedding day, and oh, she man. decides to join a turkey trot. Uh, but she is running through the woods, and she finds uh, something that's tied to a local town murder and she and her pals get caught up in the investigation which has a really long list of suspects it keeps the reader guessing uh it's it's very funny it's very light um may has plenty on her plate uh this is a bit of a pun from the author between trying to keep a, a wedding plans on track and keep her mother-in-law in line uh, so this one is really, uh, it's a light read, it's delightful, uh, and if you fall asleep in the middle of it, you'll be able to pick it up easily the <laughs> next day. Uh, Karen, you've also got two books here by Meg Cox, The Heart of a Family and The Book of New Family Traditions. Yeah, so if you're looking to start some new family traditions, Meg Cox is really the place to start. Both these books are actually on my personal uh, bookshelf. I love them. Uh, her first book is Heart of the Family, and it walks readers through some really interesting research about the importance of transitions in terms of um, mental health for young people, in terms of family cohesiveness, and it really lays the foundation about why, in general, transitions or traditions rather are are so important. She was a New York Times journalist before she sort of turned her eye to to writing books and she interviews more than 200 families for this book uh, and she learns that they use traditions and rituals in all sort of practical and whimsical areas of their life the the second part of the book is 
filled with family traditions from all these families that she's interviewed. So you sort of get a peek into how families um, celebrate everything from holidays and sort of major celebrations to the daily and weekly rituals that they use to keep their kids connected and sort of smooth oh. over those rough spots in the in your day. It's um it's a it's one of my very favorite books actually. I probably own every book on family traditions, and uh, this one's my favorite. The second book, uh, the book of new family traditions, covers much of the same ground. There's some new traditions that she talks about. It's organized in a way that makes it a little more accessible for busy families, um, and it's got some great ideas. So if you're looking for some fun things to do with kids this this holiday and you want to sort of start a tradition, I recommend both those books. Karen, you mentioned the uh, cookbook before really spoke to you in regards to the traditional turkey, but what is your favorite Thanksgiving side dish? Oh, uh, I have a fondness for turnip, actually. Oh, <laughs> my dad always Karen, yeah. Karen McKay going off the board. I know. Uh, my dad always makes it with um, lots of brown sugar, and uh, my aunt, if we go there, makes it with the marshmallow topping. So it's a way to kind of eat a little bit of sweetness in your in your meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's my favorite. Oh, that's a see that I was not expecting that answer. I was expecting, you know, stuffing or potatoes or something that I'm trying to incorporate more for my family is mac and cheese. A couple of years ago, I started bringing homemade mac and cheese to our Thanksgiving because that's a little bit more common in America, but not really in Canada. And I thought, who wouldn't want a little mac and cheese with their turkey? You're speaking my daughter's love language. She would absolutely <laughs> love that. <laughs> uh, me and your daughter are on the same page. Karen, thank you for this. Have a lovely time with your family this weekend. Thank you. You as well. That's Karen McKay, Communications Manager at the Center for Equitable Library Access. That's all the time there is for the show today. That's all the time there is for the show this week. Don't worry. We're back again on Tuesday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time after the long weekend. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. And it is Friday, so that means you roll some credits to say thank you to the people who helped put this show together. We're Working so hard behind the scenes. So let's do that. Let's say it together. Roll them credits, gang. Host Dave Brown. Co host producer Alex Smythe. Sports reporter Brock Richardson. Contributors Rami Amuthan, Nazreen Abdel Majid. Senior show producer Andrika Delanerol. Visual producer Bruce Baclarian. Producers Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion Jones. Production assistant Kingsley Juco. Director Anastasia Spalding Stenhouse. Control room operators Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby. Manager of operations Kyle Harper. Manager of live production Paula Deneen. Director of content development Kara Nye. Vice President of Programming John Melville. President and CEO David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2023, Accessible Media, Inc. NAMI Original Production. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.